Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. What is going on, Elliot Sports fam? It's your favorite history teacher, Mr. Parker Andrews, here in another edition of FN Sports, the podcast where teachers grade sports biggest issues. Today, we got a short couple of theses, but first, let's dive into a couple of gold stars and detentions. Our first gold star is going to go to Clay Thompson or whomever on the Gold State Warriors came up with the best rookie duty quasi-hazing prank of all time when they asked Jonathan Kaminga to carry around chess and checkers to things like press conferences. It was revealed over the weekend when Jonathan Kaminga, rookie on the Golden State Warriors, was asked if he plays either chess or checkers because he has to carry them around and to press conferences. He said, quote, I don't play neither of those games. I just got to do my rookie duty and carry it for Clay. to which the entire press conference started laughing. It's a very, very funny and harmless thing. It's also an interesting way to make a rookie, let's say, think about the game maybe as chess or checkers. Maybe it's not that deep, but it's a really, really funny rookie duty slash hazing, and it's very, very harmless. Shout out to the Warriors and Clay Thompson for that one. All right, sticking with the NBA, this second gold star kind of goes to John Morant, kind of goes to the Memphis Grizzlies, and really has to do a lot with jersey talk. So for those that don't remember, last week the Memphis Grizzlies beat the Golden State Warriors in what was a fun and electric game. John Morant played very, very well. And on his way out, a couple of kids in Steph Curry jerseys were trying to give John Morant a high five. He did not return the favor. At the press conference afterwards, uh, he was John Morant, I should say, was asked about why that was. And he said that they were wearing the wrong jersey. They're not his fan. He's not going to give them a high five. Which draws, drew some ire of people like, did like that, didn't like that. I kind of like that personally. Like, how are you going to like me now after you didn't like me enough to get the jersey? But what that prompted was an entire jersey drive by the Memphis Grizzlies to where any kid 12 and under could bring in their jersey of an opposing player, swap it out for a John Morant or Jaron Jackson Jr. jersey. The old jersey from the other player that's not on the Grizzlies would be given off the charity and the kid would get a free ticket to accompany a purchase ticket for their adult relative to that night's game. It really, really is a cool drive and frankly, an interesting maneuver for a mid-market team, right? Because mid-market teams typically have trouble getting the guys like the John Morant's of the world. So kids in the Memphises, kids in the Dallases, kids in the Phoenixes, the Denver's, the whatever, are far more likely to have a Lakers jersey, a Knicks jersey, a Heat jersey, a Chicago jersey, or whatever. And, or obviously a Golden State Warriors jersey in the last 10 years. And it's interesting to see, this is a way to kind of flip those fans. Be like, oh, now that we have this exciting player you want, 
Stop representing your old fandom. Come join. Get on. They're inviting people to the bandwagon in their home city. It's a really, really cool thing. And again, all the turned in jerseys, all the returned items will be sent to a charity. So it also helps out people in need with clothes, with kid sized clothes and things like that across the country. Really, really cool event. Shout out to Memphis Grizzlies. Gold star on that one. Now, this gold star is almost exactly a week old as we're sitting here recording this, but I've got to give a gold star to Georgia for beating Alabama and, frankly, making me wrong on my pick in the NCAA title game. Truly, truly incredible performance of the Georgia Bulldogs. A number of different things to cite there, but it's worth pointing out this is their first title in, I believe, 40 years. That's a long, long time. You should take note, as a Texas fan, we won one title after 35 years, and after which my dad told me, Parker, this might not happen for another 35 years. You should enjoy it. But I think Georgia's on a little bit more of a hot streak than Texas was back in 2006. Shout out to the Georgia Bulldogs for a dominant defensive performance. Pick six to seal it. Great, great game. It was a fun, exciting second half of the football game to watch. I can't wait for the rubber match. Is that too soon? Too soon to say that these two teams have played each other twice and each one once and we might need to... No, we're not going to do that? Okay, cool. Good, good. Good, we got it. Good, we got it. Good to know that. All right, so this last gold star is going to go to Dave Zyron, who's a part of the Edge of Sports, written a number of bestsellers. He was on this show, actually, go back and check the catalog, in the fall, reviewing his book, The Kaepernick Effect, in which he looked at the impact of Kaepernick at all different levels of sports after the fact. But today, we're going to give Dave Zyron a gold star for his outline on his Twitter. So if you go to at Edge of Sports on Twitter, he outlines on MLK Day of 2022, which is also, just because of the way it falls, on Muhammad Ali's birthday, or what would have been Muhammad Ali's birthday, and he outlines the relationship developed between MLK and Muhammad Ali and how the activism and sport interwove itself in the 60s. Now, these two guys that were frankly kind of opposites at one part of their life ended up becoming similar and even friends and uh, colleagues at another part of their life. It's a really, really cool thread. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you right now. I've got plenty of talking to do over the course of the show, but you should go check out at Edge of Sports on Twitter and see the whole thing. It's a really, really cool story that he tweets about and then has a longer form article to click on as well. Shout out to Dave. Always doing great work. Okay, so our first attention is going to go to the referees that worked the Bengals-Raiders wildcard playoff game over the weekend. Yes, we're going to hand out a few different detentions to referees, although this one I do think impacted the game very, very heavily, and so I, I feel like it's worth mentioning here. The whistle was blown shortly after Joe Burrow releases the football on his way to the sideline. If you missed this play, it's kind of a crucial moment of the game. As Burrow is rolling to his right, he released the ball just before stepping out of bounds. The ball is in the air. The whistle gets blown while the ball is in mid-flight, to which I don't really know how to explain why a whistle was blown at that moment. Anyways, the result is that Tyler Boyd ends up catching the ball in the back of the end zone. It does look weirdly like the defense stops while the whistle is blown. Now, whether or not the defense can realistically make a play on the ball or, or whatever, I guess, is all a decent and fair argument. But at the time, the game was 13-6, to Bengals, two minutes, a little over two minutes before the half. Going up 20-6 to really, really changed the dynamics of that game a whole lot. The Raiders got the ball and drove down the field and scored and got it to 20-13 right before the half. But that touchdown being reversed or something else happening there might have made that closer or even a tie game going into the half. Then, 
when you factor in that Cincinnati only scored six points in the second half and Las Vegas only scored six points in the second half, it feels even more like that seven points is ultra, ultra important because Cincinnati ends up winning by seven. Now, could you make the argument that it was third down, you either replay the down because the inadvertent whistle and they potentially score, or you call the down over and you get a fourth down, they get a field goal, and if they win by seven and they win by three or whatever, sure, all of that could carry out. The game would have been different. But that's the point. The game could have been different. The game should have been different. The game, Again, Burrow was not out of bounds. He was dangerously close. And so I see why that would be the initial reaction as a defender when you're 25 yards away to hear the whistle blown to stop playing. I also understand that people say play through the whistle. But this was after the whistle. Like when you're a football player, and I don't know how much football playing the audience has done here, but when you're a football player, you get ingrained in your head so much to be violent through the whistle that when that whistle sounds, there's like this innate like click that just like, boom, I'm done being violent for a second. Boom, I'm done for a second. Something happened, plays over because you've been taught so many times that playing after the whistle gets you penalties, gets you hurt, gets you in trouble, gets you like those kinds of things happen. And so I, I really, again, you could argue that you replay the down and they score anyway. You could argue they go to the fourth down and they get a field goal and win anyway. I'm not saying that necessarily means that the outcome would not have been Bengals win, but it definitely would have been different. Now, this attention is a lot more fun to hand out because, frankly, it is always fun to give Logan Paul a detention. Detention Logan Paul for buying a large, fake set of Pokemon cards. Yes, you heard that right. Logan Paul spent a lot of money... Again, he spent an unknown but large amount of money on what he thought was $3.5 million of first edition Pokemon cards, only to open the box and realize that they were actually some bootleg G.I. Joe crap, and it was not Pokemon cards. So, A, you got to have better ideas about your investments, and B, this is the danger in investing in all of these crazy things like cards and stuff like that. There's not a whole lot of regulations on They went out of market he bought these cards off of some dude off the street and he gave him a box he paid him money for that box he went home thinking that box was three and a half million he opened it and it's worth jack now that's all on logan paul so we got to go to detention there to sit in detention and think about what you've been doing all right so after a logan paul detention we're gonna go back to football because there's like 18 different detentions to hand out in the dallas cowboys playoff loss to the San Francisco 49ers. For starters, there were 14 penalties on Dallas. Now, like one or two, like those kind of things happen. And being aggressive, maybe jump the gun on a first, you know, crossing the line too early, something like that. But man, 14 penalties this point in the year comes down to coaching. It's not first game jitters. It's not first week jitters. And certainly was not playoff jitters that anyone on San Francisco had, right? 14 penalties is undoubtedly lack of discipline and coaching and lack of being able to do your job without without creating penalties and that also falls back to the coaches. So 14 penalties could be the, any of the first detentions in that game. The second detention I'm going to give is Dak Prescott. For I'm not even upset necessarily with people have really on Twitter and stuff like that in the 24 hours after the Cowboys game going on and on about should Dak have ran the ball up the middle and da-da-da and all that. The draw itself was not awful. Frankly, taking a few seconds to get the ball down the field, middle of the field, and open up more of the playbook to then spike the ball theoretically is not even that bad a thing to me. But... A, Dak went too far. He took too much time at the clock in doing it, clearly. B, he then leaves the ball on the ground or hands it to the center instead of giving the ball to the referee because you have to know the rules in that situation when the referee has to touch the ball, right? So detention could go to Dak for that. 
Second detention could be to the referee for running through deck in the center to get the ball. Now, I understand he's running full speed, trying, and he's not going to go run around the offensive line because that would take even more time. But he literally just has to touch the football. They have splits between the offensive linemen that defensive linemen fit through. This referee could have fit between the two, been able to touch the ball, and kept moving. But the real loss of time, because there probably could have been a second or two on the clock, was in the center. Tyler, I think it's Bayazdas. I'm not sure. I've never heard it pronounced out loud. I've just seen him in the back of jersey a bunch of times. But he hands it to the center. The center then gets knocked over when Dak gets knocked over in the reference into the both of them. That could be its own detention as well. But much, much earlier in the game, you could do detentions to a number of different Cowboys things, like following up the fake punt for a first down and getting any momentum that you believe in happens there with a delay of game penalty because you lose a game of chicken with the substitutions on the San Francisco defense. That's not great either, right? You could go with the fact that they abandoned the run game once they were down 10 to nothing. Like, they just stopped running the ball with any effectiveness. They only ran the ball 21 times for 77 yards. And while some of those are like, well, you only got 77 yards, what'd you get out of it? They also do all kinds of extra movements in the backfield. How many times do you just see Tony Pollard go off tackle for power? How many times do you see Ezekiel Elliott go in between the guard and center for a dive or isolation type of play? That's not, like, as all the creativity we give credit to Kellen Moore for, he also doesn't do the basic stuff. And when you're good, like several, like the Dallas Cowboys are talented. When you're good, you ought to be able to do the basic stuff. You shouldn't just rely on things like hook and ladders or double passes or flea flickers or trickerations. Like, if you're good, you can also execute the basic plays and it should work. And Dallas refuses to do that for another head coach and another year and another playoff loss. So, detentions to a lots of different guys all the way around there. Man, that was a tough one to watch. And they still almost won the game. On top of all of that, they still almost won detention to Dallas and all the Cowboys and just all of it. All right, friends, we've got one thesis in the dank for today. We're going to do it a little bit fun and short and sweet, and then we'll dive in with our normal midterm later this week. So without further ado, let's dive on in to the show. Okay, Parker, so the thesis statement for this commercial is James Harden has the best beard in sports. What do you think about that thesis statement? Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we, we seem to have an affinity for our beards between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big beards in the Houston area. What do you think about the thesis? So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden. But you're talking to a couple of bearded teachers, and we know a thing or two about making sure that you maintain that mane. So check out the beard struggle. The beard struggle, they make oils, they make balms, they even have have this heated comb to make sure that you get your beard straight so that you're looking fresh. I know I've really enjoyed using the oil they make for my quarantine beard of sorts. It's nice and long these days, but it'll <laughs> keep it nice and healthy and hydrated. And if you're listening to our show, you can use FN Sports 15 and get 15% off your oils, your balms, your shampoos, conditioners, whatever you need to use to keep your beard looking healthy. Absolutely. Check out The Beard Struggle at thebeardstruggle.com. Whether you're just starting to grow or you have a luscious mane already, The Beard Struggle's got all the products that you need. The Beard Struggle. Feast your face. All right. 
So our first and only thesis this week is that the Rooney Rule has been a failure. I hear that thesis, and while I think it's nice and fun and inflammatory, I'm going to give that, like, a C. That means I got some things I like about it, some things I don't like about it, well, really one big thing I don't like about it. And so I think that means it's time to dive in. All right, so we should probably first establish what the Rooney Rule is, because I think it gets thrown around a lot, and A, it's not really that old, and B, I think we need to make sure we're all operating from the same terminology. The Rooney Rule is an NFL policy that requires NFL teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for their head coaching and senior football operation types of jobs. That does not mean you're required to interview someone for things like a quarterback coach. That does not mean you're required to interview a person of color for things like your assistant to the GM's assistant secretary, vice president of snacks. Like all, Not every single job within an NFL organization has to follow this rule. Just the head coach and the senior football operations staff that's important to note here because it's really only impacting those jobs. Second, the rule is named after Dan Rooney, former owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers and chairman of the league's diversity committee. He instituted this rule in 2002, or sorry, it was in reaction to the 2002 firings of Tony Dungy from Tampa and Dennis Green in Minnesota. Dungy had a winning record and Green had just had his first losing season in like 10 years. So people are like, why on earth are they firing these two blackhead coaches that have had, frankly, decent, if not better than decent success, right? Like, why would that make any sense? And so then you start seeing couple different civil rights attorneys including like the famous johnny cochran step in and show that black coaches despite having higher winning percentages are less likely to be hired and more likely to be fired and so on and that really starts to be a bad bad look for the league so the rooney rule is instituted as a reaction to all of that the rule goes into effect in 2003 and almost immediately starts saying some sort of impact just because teams have to interview these people like oh Folks like Marvin Lewis step into the Cincinnati Bengals job and be like, oh, he didn't just run a good defense and have no idea what was going on in offense. He's a great head coaching candidate for the Cincinnati Bengals. He ends up being there a long time. Marvin Lewis ended up coaching the Bengals for 15 years with up and down success, but frankly, as good a success as they'd had with anyone before him. I know we're coming off of they just won their first playoff game. And since what's the meme that went circulating that they've won their first playoff game since people been able to text from cell phones because the first weekend you've been able to text about the Cincinnati Bengals playoff victory. But relative to a very strong division, the Bengals were pretty good, if not better than average, right, for the ent- majority of the time, if not the entire time that he was there. Another notable hire on this is the Steelers themselves end up hiring Mike Tomlin in the summer of 07, or the offseason of 07, I should say. Worth noting, I guess, on their like checking off the boxes, the Steelers had actually already interviewed Ron Rivera, Hispanic American, uh, which means that they actually had qualified and checked off the boxes as far as the Runa goes. They were going above and beyond it to interview a number of different people of color. But anyway, they bring in Mike Tomlin. Tomlin obviously has had extreme success, has been a head coach for whatever that is at 15 16 years has not had a losing season as head coach has won a super bowl as a head coach worth pointing out he also won a super bowl as an assistant coach earlier in his career but tomlin is obviously a very very strong coach and whatever you think about their loss over the weekend to kansas city it's worth pointing out his quarterback is a bajillion years old and has a noodle arm and he lost two different mvp caliber players at skill positions and has continued to go 
better than 500, right? He loses Antonio Brown before we know all the chaos that surrounds Antonio Brown, right? Back then, Antonio Brown was just like the guy that had Facebook Live going in the locker room. Now we know all this other stuff about it. And like, how did Tomlin deal with that guy? Oh, the way he dealt with that guy was by winning football games in spite of his distractions, right? Le'Veon Bell and all the craziness surrounding that and their hip-hop career and those kinds of things. Like, Tomlin won football games with that in his backfield and continued to win football games when that guy left, right? I think all of that is worth pointing out when referencing Mike Tomlin, so make sure we get that on the stage there, that the Steelers did not have to hire, did not have to interview Mike Tomlin. They'd already fulfilled the Rooney requirement, but then went ahead and did it anyway and were blown away when he showed up in the interview. After all, he'd only been a defensive coordinator for a season. Uh, he'd been the defensive coordinator in Minnesota for the season before that, and before that single season as a defensive coordinator, he'd been a like DB's coach for couple different pro teams, a couple different college teams, like had, had kind of had a very short career before becoming a head coach. Really, really miraculous and quick rise and impressive rise. And one that should be not just because of the Steelers and then also as the ties to Rooney, but like the reason for doing this. Bring these guys in, give them a real chance. Bring people in that like buck whatever you think a head coach is supposed to look like. Give them a real chance. And oh my God, he's a fantastic coach. The way this has played out in the last decade, I guess you know, shortly after Tomlin was hired has been that there's a number of different assistant coaches that you can guarantee are going to get a bunch of interviews. There's been a number of different assistant coaches and coordinators and things like that that you can guarantee are going to get to like ask to come in an interview, but they don't necessarily actually have a real chance at any of the jobs and the same handful of names every time. And the truth is, is that they continue to move the goalposts for what fits air quotes a head coaching candidate at first it's that you want a defensive mastermind well so you start seeing guys like Todd Bowles show up you start seeing guys like Raheem Morris guys like Vance Joseph or Lovey Smith even Leslie Frazier in Buffalo you got a number of different guys that come across as defensive coordinators and then you see this big shift well actually we really think that offensive coordinators make the best head coaches so then you have the summer of 2020 or the 2020 offseason I should say because it starts in the summer where a number of different teams all bypass the greatest offense we've ever seen's coordinator Eric Bieniemy, right Five teams fill their head coaching vacancies without even interviewing Bienemy. Not that they don't fulfill the running rule with other interviews, but the league's best offense under Kansas City and Andy Reid, who has nothing but good things to say about Bienemy and all of those things, you go on and on without hiring him. It just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Eventually, you fast forward to modern day. Like as we're recording this, it's Monday, January seventeenth of twenty twenty two. And the only active black head coach is still Mike Tomlin. After the number of firings to end the season, right, you had David Culley get fired. You had Brian Flores get fired. And those guys represent franchises that, bluntly, I don't know what else they were supposed to do. Right, you look at the Houston Texans and the implosion that's happening in the Texans around Culley, and it's like, well, what were they supposed to do? They had no quarterback. They had no offensive skill position guys. They had weak offensive line. They had to give away the draft picks and a trade. Like, what were they going to do? Meanwhile, you go across the south to Florida on the other side. In southern Florida, you got Brian Flores and the Miami Dolphins. And in two years, yeah, he's 24 and 25. But this season, the Dolphins finished at 9 and 8. 9 and 8 
kept Bill O'Brien in Houston for, or 9-7, and seven, I should say, because they played less games, but kept Bill O'Brien in Houston for a number of years, going just above 500. What was Brian Flores supposed to do when, again, this team is early in the rebuilding stages? You're telling him to play Tua, not to play Tua, those kinds of things with all the quarterback stuff there. There's a big drama in the middle of the season about who's going to be the quarterback of the future and those kinds of things. Like, I don't know what Flores was supposed to do better in that situation either, right? And... I guess that becomes the deal here, is if you're judging whether or not the Rooney rule has worked or not, it should not just be that like these coaches are infallible. Although I'd argue that going nine and se- nine and eight with that roster in nine and eight with the sweep in New England with that roster in Miami, I think is good enough to maintain your job for another year, especially when like you didn't have crazy high hopes coming into the season. Like, did they expect to win 12 games? Like, what was the issue? What was the fallback? What was missing in what they got done and what they wanted to get done? I'm not really, really sure. I also think it's worth pointing out that, like, as tough as it is for these guys to get that first job, it's becoming increasingly tougher to get that second job, right? You see a number of guys get the first job, doesn't work out, they end up becoming coordinator somewhere else right i don't think todd bowles is going to get hired again todd bowles is a head coach of the new york jets for three seasons he's now fantastic defense coordinator for a fantastic defense down there in tampa right leslie frazier had a three-year run with minnesota and that three-year run came up short i guess of whatever they thought they were supposed to be doing in minnesota so they fired him again i don't know what they thought he was supposed to do but they fired him and now he's running a great defense in buffalo Raheem Morris, you could argue the same thing about Tampa being the head coach from, uh, I think it was two or three years. I might have my years off there, somewhere around the like 08 to 10, 09 to 11 window. He goes from that to now being the D coordinator for the playoff bound, or the, again, I guess they played tonight. We're recording on a Monday for the LA Rams. Mike Singletary had a number of years in San Francisco. I go on and on. The deal is, is that they get that job and then it's like, well, they don't get the other job. Meanwhile, Bill O'Brien did an awful job in Houston, watched the team implode as the GM and head coach, took a year off to the OC at Alabama, and a year their offense is like very much pedestrian for what we expect out of Alabama, and is now back in coaching hunt again, like back on this back on the interview circuit, back in an interview for more teams. Right? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. And that's where I'm like, if the deal is gonna be that they're the coaches of color are not going to get a second shot then the Rooney rule is clearly not doing what it needs to do it's not getting these people the fair chance that it needs to get them that's why I first don't think it's working that's why I sit sit here and sit like I don't know if that's working or not I'm sorry I, I think that that means it comes up to a C anyway the thief's throwing off but I the reasons I would think it's not working are because you see guys sit around and not get the second gig the third gig the whatever right Herm Edwards was a coaching candidate for a number of teams in the mid-2000s, has not really gotten back in the scene since, right? Tony Dungy had the Tampa Bay Bucks, Indianapolis Colts. A wait comes around, he doesn't get to coach after that either. I guess I look at this and think that it's also hard to imagine that all these coaching trees get built up, that all these people that only get one chance, and the NFL itself is nearly 70% black and i think that's interesting to think that like only certain people can play and certain people can coach and that that, like why would that be the case right we've been around the nfl long enough that those former players are turning into coaches and turning into position coaches and turning into coordinators why and they're not turning into head coaches very fast and then when they turn into head coaches every head coach is going to get fired at some point so why aren't they going to ever going to get rehired and that circle seems backwards meanwhile 
less than 30% of head coaches are non-Hispanic white, and three-fourths of the NFL head coaches are white. Again, it's interesting that that's the translation, that less than a third of the people that play it are white and more than three-fourths of the people coaching it. Again, and that's without any of the current vacancies being filled, right? For all we know, Chicago, Denver, Houston, Miami, Minnesota, New York could all hire people of color, all fulfill their whatever, and change the numbers in this dramatically. But right now, present day, as we sit here, the only black coach is Mike Tomlin. The only other two people of color that are coaching are Robert Sala and Rob, uh, Ron Rivera. Okay, that's pretty damning across the rest of the way because I can tell you right now, there are plenty of other bad head coaches as I look at that. Like Brandon Staley in the way that the end of that Chargers Raiders game. Was that not a fireable offense? Was that not more fireable than anything that's happened in Miami with Brian Flores? You could look at the Dallas Cowboys and all of the things that have gone wrong and how, how off with coaching has been there with all the penalties at the end of the game, the questionable play calls, the un- inability to do things like run the football with all the money they put in the running backs and offensive line. Is Mike McCarthy really able to hold on to that coaching spot? Like, is that really something we're going to do here? Right? Uh, is it time for Pete Carroll? You know, as great a career as he had, Pete Carroll has been in Seattle for 12 years, something like that now. Like, has the game not passed him by? The same way the game has passed other coaches by? Like, like what's the deal there? And I understand they just hired Dan Campbell in Detroit. I understand that, you know, we'll see what happens with Vegas if they're going to hold on to Rick Passaccia or not, all those kinds of things. But, like, at some point, it feels like this is giving certain people longer chances than others. I also sit here and think about, like, the team that has the most diversity amongst its coaching staff is Tampa. The team that ran away with this thing in the playoffs last year is Tampa, right? They have a number of different black coaches in their coaching staff. They have three black coordinators, offense, defense, special teams. They have a black associate head coach as well that helps out with the run game. They have black positional coaches. They have female positional coaches, women on their strength and conditioning staff. They have a number of different people represented across their coaching staff, and it's pretty easy to watch that football team and say that's one of the best coach teams in the NFL. Now, could you say some of that's Tom Brady? Sure. Could you say some of that's Bruce Arians? Sure. But you also have to say that what they're doing is when people come to interview for jobs in Tampa, they're hiring the best person for the job, and thus they're getting the best people for the job and doing the job the best. And I think that's worth pointing out. Now, this did not get a perfect grade, right? I'm not going to completely say that the ring rule has is done working and those kinds of things because there is also a part of me that, as I'm saying, all of these awful things about how it's not being used and not being, it's not working and this and that. I also have to admit. I don't know where the NFL is without it. We mentioned at the top of the segment that Mike Tomlin is the lone black head coach as we record this today. He was hired by the team that instituted the Rooney Rule, right? At some level, if the rule does not exist, is the problem even worse? And that's why I sit and I don't know. And that's why I can't sit here and just completely say one or the other on it because in the back of my mind... I also know that so much of the coaching hiring game is who knows who and what tree you fall from and what an owner or GM thinks a head coach ought to be like, whether that's look like, walk like, talk like, whatever. And unfortunately, the truth is, without this rule, could it be even worse? I don't know. 
and that's why I said it as Friends, that was another edition of FN Sports. Do you feel like you have a better understanding of the real rule and whether or not it's working? Shout out to Chris Slewa for helping us edit the show. You can follow Chris at Chris underscore Slewa7 on Twitter or at Chris Slewa7 on Instagram. He does a lot of help with the show. That's all the editing behind the scenes, so make sure you go get the guy a follow. Shout out to Chris. Thank you for all the work you do. You can find me and all my personal stuff on Twitter and Instagram at Painsworth512. That's at P-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H 512 on Twitter and Instagram. I'll post things like the shows I'm recording, the shows I'm doing, the things I'm writing, the things I'm publishing, a number of other fun things too, like I'll be live-tweeting various Rockets games, uh, we won a game day, yeah, or I'll be doing things like talking about Texas football, boo, or I'll be posting things like sneakers, which I actually got a sneakers win over the weekend, shout out to the sneakers app for getting the Thunder Red 4s, although I may be flipping those because I really like the black and red patent leather ones. We'll talk anyway. You can find me on inter- on the internet to talk about sneakers if you want to. Again, that's at Painsworth five one two at P A I N S W R T H five one two on Twitter and Instagram. You can find this show on Instagram at f underscore n underscore sports. Again, that's at f underscore n underscore sports or on Twitter. We're building quite a following. You can find us at f n sports too. That's f i n s p r t s number two, all one word. On both of those social media handles, you can go to the link in the bio to find all of our a shows on things like youtube and spotify and apple Podcasts and those kinds of things you can also be sure you find our merch store on those handles you can go buy various t-shirts and sweatshirts that help support charitable causes make sure you go check those out i've got one on as i sit here recording this they're comfy they're fun go find those on again the link is in our social media handles go to fn sports 2 on twitter go to the link in the bio right there click on that go to the merch store you can find all your goodies there you can also find a number of our different sponsors that way. You can go to find my bookie, where you can use code FNSportsW deposit. You can find the link to Yeti, who helps support the show. Make sure you go buy a Yeti cooler cup or koozie. And you can find a link to The Beard Struggle, one of our original sponsors. We can use code FNSports15 to get 15% off your order. So make sure you go check all of those wonderful things out. Wherever you listen to this podcast, A, listen to it to a couple places, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, YouTube, wherever. B, give us... Five-star ratings, rate, review, do all the wonderful things to have with the podcast, and see whatever you do when it comes to sports. Don't flunk with us. Later, guys. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's wintertime. When temperatures go down, the likelihood goes up that your furnace and other appliances go down with them. So don't risk a costly replacement. Stay comfortable with coverage on the appliances you depend on most with the Service Guard Appliance Repair Program from Black Hills Energy. It's peace of mind in a plan. Visit blackhillsenergy.com slash sign up to learn more.